You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed. Weekend World on Voice of Islam. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. Peace and blessings to all our listeners. Welcome to the Voice of Islam. It is uh, welcome to our listeners. Uh, good morning, assalamu alaikum. Welcome to the Voice of Islam. It is Sunday, the 3rd of July. The time now is coming up to 10 to 6. Listening on, you can listen to Weekend World on Voice of Islam, on DAB Radio and the mobile, 24 hours a day. The Weekend World Show is a current affairs show with the week's news, views and reviews from a faith and non-faith perspective, promoting the message of peace and unity, discussing religion, politics, sports and all things current. The message of Islam for the West. You're listening to The Weekend World Show with us in Apathy. You can join us and share your views and stories by phoning 0208-687-7878. Or you can tweet us at Voice of Islam UK. This, uh, the views on the Weekend World Show are those of the individuals and guests. Joining as ever with me this morning is our chief libra- librarian at the Bethel Futur Mosque and my co-host, Walid Ahmed. Assalamu alaikum, Walid. Walaikum. Nice summery day outside. Yes, uh, good Wimbledon weather, isn't it? Yes. It is, yes. yes. Uh, have you ever been to Wimbledon? I've been to Wimbledon, but not to the tennis courts. Oh, right, okay. <laughs> <laughs> been to the shopping centre. Shopping centre, <laughs> of course. Uh, and, uh, yes. Of course, uh, wherever your wife leads you, you go. Of, of uh, course, as we, as we all do, <laughs> yes. <laughs> no, I had a good fortune. I used to go to the very early, uh, in the early years, in the 70s and the 70s and early 80s. Were you a ball boy? No, no, or no. Were you too old no, at that time? No, 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 no. No, I could have been. My cousin was. Oh, uh, yes. But I was uh, a spectator. Uh-huh. So I used to do. And then yeah. I got and I got tickets last year to, mm-hmm. the, to the center court. Not a player then? Not a player. Okay. Not a player. I uh, did play a bit of tennis, but you're going to call me a player. Uh-huh. Anyway, uh, with this hot weather, strawberries and creams, the, mm. the order of the day at, uh, at Wimbledon tennis courts. Uh, well, it, uh, the f- the Eleanor Roosevelt once mm. says that the future belongs to those who believe in the beauty of their dreams. Mm. Dreams play an essential role in, in our lives, don't they? Because uh, we all dream, but whether we can remember the dream or not is another matter. But we all have dreams. Uh, they must play a function in our existence. Mm. Well, yes. Um, so there's uh, dreams that we experience when we're asleep. Mm. They're, um, they have been analysed uh, quite deeply and quite widely. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there are other sorts of dreams as well. Dreams ambitions. of winning Wimbledon or something like that. Yes, <laughs> well, m- maybe not, not far-fetched as <laughs> that. No. Okay. But, you know, ambitions. And mm. I think that's, uh, that's good to have. Uh, yes. Ambitions and aims and objectives. Uh, that's a good thing to have, especially if they're positive uh, objectives. And I presume Eleanor Roosevelt, wife of uh, the President Roosevelt, mm. is probably aiming towards that with this thing, mm. isn't she? That, that mm. you, you should have aspirations mm. and you're driven to, to those. Yes. And human nature yes. is about being driven, isn't it? Yeah, mm. absolutely. Yeah. But we'll talk about dreams later because mm. remember, if you remember, Dr. Fried was with us a few weeks ago and he was talking about dreams and how to interpret them. Hmm. So we're going to have a look at another aspect of dreams with him today. Oh, yeah. right. Okay. This is the voice of Islam, conveying the true message of Islam, the message of peace and promoting love for all, hatred for none. So, Walid, what have we got this morning for our listeners? Well, we begin, as always, uh, with our news review. Mm-hmm. And joining us is Conservative Candidate for Spect- 
uh, Philip Gent. Uh, he's from Woking and he's going to give us his take on uh, on some of the top news stories that are circulating in the wider media. This will be followed by the Faith in Focus where we're going to continue to uh, take our journey uh, down the life of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, talking about this uh, uh, famous expedition to Tabuk the, the and mm. what happened afterwards. Okay, look forward to that. And what have we got for the behind the line, behind the headline segment of uh, well, at 11, after 11? Uh, you mentioned Dr. Fareed about uh, dreams. Well, yep. he'll be joining us to discuss about the night journey of the Holy Prophet, often uh, perceived as a literal journey. Uh, but Dr. Fareed will give us the view, uh, as understood by early Muslims, that the journey actually was uh, what the journey was about. And uh, I suppose uh, he'll uh, uh, explain as to whether this was a dream or something that happened in reality. Yes, and, and what it means, yeah. Uh, yeah, of which course. is more important. As you said, uh, dreams are not just there, they have a function as well, and mm. we'll, we'll get to the bottom of that, some of that. Have you got anything in the community news segment of the show at 11.30? We have indeed. The UK government is holding an international ministerial conference on freedom of religion or belief. Mm. Uh, the Ahmadiyya Muslim community has been facing severe persecution and are featuring prominently in the conference. So we will be joined by Azhar, uh, um, Azhar Chaudhary, in yeah. fact, mm. uh, who leads the APPG for the Ahmadiyya community. Tell us about the about this conference. Yes, um, I think the, uh, the Muslim community is playing a, a, a prominent role in that uh, mm. uh, ministerial uh, conference. And we'll know what exactly is going to be happening there. Uh, sports segment, uh, Shahid, I believe, is coming to the studio. Oh, that'll be uh, interesting. Mm. Uh, no football, unfortunately, still. Uh, yes. But cricket and a catch-up on the tennis with Wimbledon entering its uh, second week. So that's uh, probably uh, the areas that will be covered by uh, Shahid later on mm. in that part. Has the interest of uh, tennis taken over your interest of football, maybe? No, unfo- un- 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 <laughs> unfortunately, my, my my kids have taken uh, taken two tennis. And oh, that's right. what I'm... Having to be uh, uh, subjected to oh uh, during my during my dinner uh, instead of watching uh, interesting uh, documentaries, <laughs> documentaries and <laughs> or MTA like EastEnders or something like that. Oh, MTA, of course, <laughs> of course, indeed. Right. Uh, <laughs> yes, we, we will. A lot. Yesterday, yesterday's matches were quite interesting, though. They were indeed, mm. and uh, some touchy ones as well. Yes. <laughs> yeah. People well. were getting touchy entering the second week. We'll we'll learn more from Shahid. Uh, thank you very much for that. We'll leave, mm. as always, packed show uh, with lots to, uh, with lots uh, of variety of subjects to be discussed, both religious, political, and otherwise. Anyone eager to share the comment or views can do so by phoning us on 0208-687-7878. They can tweet us at Voice of Islam UK, Voice of Islam on Dab Radio, mobile, and live stream on voiceofislam.co.uk. This is the Weekend Roll Show with Asal Amdi. The views on the Weekend Roll Show are those of the individuals and guests. Weekend World on Voice of Islam. Right, uh, Lisa. Yep. Um, we have um, uh, various news items that uh, we're going to be discussing now. Um, the first of those, um, uh, the... Uh, the is about the the state of moral morality in our societies, mm. and um, no not, jingle. The, there there can be a jingle. Well, oh. We can always play a jingle. News review. Yeah, Weekend world. Look at this week's news, views, and reviews. Right. Uh, 
The headline from the BBC was uh, on Friday and Saturday, Zara Lina's aunt wants to speak to UK leaders. An aspiring lawyer killed in a street attack in London was fearless, her aunt has said, and she vowed to speak with political leaders to tackle violence against women and girls. Mm. Uh, Zara Lina, 35, she was walking home uh, along Cranbrook Road, Ilford, when she was attacked in the early hours of Sunday. Uh, prosecutors said she was dragged onto a driveway. Yes, and uh, her aunt Farnaz said that she was incredibly giving, supportive, insightful, empathetic and fearless. She added, the one word that would describe Zara would be independent. Earlier, Jordan McSweeney, 29, of Dagenham, appeared in court charged with the murder, attempted penetration without consent and robbery. Appearing via video link uh, from HMP Thameside and wearing a green jumper, uh, Mr. McSweeney was seen covering his face with his hands ahead of the hearing before sitting back in his chair. Ms. Nas added that was what she valued more than anything, her independence. She was quite different to the rest of us because Zara didn't have any fear. So I think that... uh, um, brings uh, a lot of questions to the fore, it, it? It does. Well, let's listen to what the police statement was uh, when this incident happened. As you will be aware, we're investigating the tragic murder of a woman in Ilford in the early hours of yesterday morning. I can confirm that pending formal identification that we believe the victim to be a local 36-year-old woman named Zara Alina. Resources from across the Met are being drawn upon to help us identify whoever is responsible and the murder investigation is developing quickly. Our priority is to catch the perpetrator as soon as possible and for that reason there are some aspects of the investigation that I won't be commenting on and I will not be taking any questions. There will be further information that we release to the press and the public as soon as possible. We are keeping Zara's family up to date with our progress and my heartfelt condolences are with them at this terrible time. They are being supported by specialist officers, but I cannot imagine the pain that they must be feeling right now. That was the police uh, on, on, the rest, on, on the murder of Lina Zareen. This is uh, uh, what uh, some of her friends and her aunt said about, Zareen, uh, about Zara. I don't feel sorry for us even though we have this huge gap in our lives, this huge hole, and our lives will never be the same. I feel sorry for her. She lost everything towards her dreams. You know, she, was, she had her foot on that step, both of them firmly planted on that step. Right. Um... We're uh, supposed to have Philip Gent with us. Uh, Philip, are you there? Assalamu alaikum. Wa alaikum salam. Yes. Uh, on you. Yes, I wasn't sure whether you were ready, but uh, thank you very much for joining us as always. It was always a pleasure having you there. Uh, you are you, you are a uh, prospective candidate for the Tory parties, and uh, how's that going for you? Um, very well. Um, I guess, you know, now that I've got the green light uh, from, from April, mm. it's it's really a case of um, now raising raising my profile. Um, I've also become chairman of the Waterland Wooden Conservative uh, in the midterm. So 
yeah, okay. we'll, we'll take it a step at a time. Good, and, good. Uh, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm seeking, seeking advice and uh, Okay. Uh, Philip, yeah. your voice is just a little bit quiet. If you can just get closer to the ah, phone, possibly, yes. and uh, yes, yes. just speak. is that better? Uh, yes, that's much better. Uh, we were just uh, covering this news item of Zara Lina's uh, death, uh, very sad death, and uh, there was a vigil for her yesterday as well. I mean, the question is: is is our society because we see all these murders happening in our streets? London is in the forefront of most of it. Uh, have uh, is it a breakdown of our society? Lack of morality? Is it the police not uh, being effective as they should be? What's, what what do you think is the issue here? Yeah, no, that you you've, you've highlighted a number of number of areas. If I if I just first of all look at it, sort of from a big picture perspective, obviously we've as a society if we look at over over many millennia, hmm. we've moved from sort of hunter gatherer to Postmodern, and that that journey is called um, modernization. Now, that the characteristic of, of how society has moved and transformed is that societies necessarily become larger and more heterogeneous. I, you know, people are more different from, from one another, um, and and that does weaken social bonds, weakens the sense of community. Uh, and places greater emphasis on on, on the individual. Mm. Um, there is along the way. There is also a loss of tradition. There's there's also a loss of the ways of of thinking. And equally, there's a growth um, of individual freedoms and individual autonomy. So people do things uh, that deviate from norms and previously acceptable ways of of doing things so um, it's it, in, in many ways this transformation that's been happening over many millennia uh, and has been accelerated over the last 20 30 40 years given the information age and the scientific and technological development it's a double-edged sword in the sense that um, everything is magnified um, the benefits are huge but equally um, the precariousness precariousness of humankind is greater uh, pollution, wars, uh, the number of people that are killed in wars, etc. But you know, on the other side, health and quality of life has has been improved. Now, looking at it sort of from from the aspect of morality and violence, mm. um, especially in relation to violence against women and girls, which you you have mentioned. Looking at the, the statistics from from 2000, the homicides um, of men um, has has increased. Uh, I think currently in England and Wales, homicides are around about 500 a year, which is, you know, one is too many, but you know, up to 500. And 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 the homicides of women yeah, has stayed more or less constant at 200 mm. uh, over the last 20 20 years or so. Again, one is too many, but that sort of gives us a perspective over the last sort of 20 years. Yeah. I and mean, in, I was going to say, uh, in Islam, uh, there's this um, uh, practice that uh, when women go out alone, they should be chaperoned, uh, only because men are the s strongest sex in the sense, not in mentally or other capabilities, but just physically stronger, and therefore can cause... 
more harm to uh, to, uh, to others, uh, whether it's other men or women in particular, and it's, that seems to be a trend. Now, how can society learn from that? How can we improve the lot of women? Because that is what this is all about. We we saw the police uh, woman who was murdered, uh, the, 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 uh, Sarah Everard, who was killed by a police constable, uh, a police yeah. officer. Um, yeah. How can we help women more? How can society uh, protect women? Yeah, yeah. No, uh, first of all, the, the Crown Prosecution Service, which, which you mentioned, they, they have developed a strategy uh, which includes sort of looking at violence against women and girls mm. and improve prosecutions uh, and support victims but society needs to look at this holistically um, folks in particular I think on four, four strands which is sort of prevention so looking at you know what the public and private sectors can do to understand you know how such crimes uh, the risk of such crimes and how these crimes eventually escalate. Yeah. Um, you mentioned the criminal justice system. Um, you know, you know, how do they respond to such crimes yeah. uh, and the severity of punishment? Mm. Um, in relation to those who commit these crimes, a greater understanding, perhaps, of you know, what are their behaviours, what are the characteristics, what are the risk factors, and what kind of interventions can happen, um, but also rehabilitation equally. Yeah. They're focusing on, and then victims. Of course, we shouldn't forget the victims. You know, supporting them. Um, and, 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 there, uh, and there is yeah. good support for victims in Britain, in the yeah. British system, isn't there? Because I've I've experienced it uh, through interpreting work, etc. Well, in terms of uh, Islam recognizing um, the role of women, uh, it, it, it in all aspects of spirituality, and. Uh, intellectually, women are given equal status, but in the terms of physical presence, it does warn that uh, the women are of a weaker sex, in physically built, that is, and therefore society requires certain protection. Islam recognizes that men and women are not equal. I think that's the bottom line. They are different. Hmm. It doesn't mean that one is superior and one is inferior. Okay. Uh, women have certain advantages over men, and men have certain advantages over women. Exactly. Um, yes. So they are different. They're different. They don't treat them as, equal, as, as the same. Yeah, it's, yeah, I think it's, it's very foolish to say that, well, we're all equal, we have to be uh, we're identical, we mm. have to have identical rights. Mm. This, is, uh, this is just, uh, I think, the stupidity. Um, our rights are accorded according to uh, the differences that exist. Mm. Women have been given the privilege, the honor of being able to um, bear uh, children, children, right? Um, and that's an honor uh, uh, that uh, men don't have. Yeah. Uh, Another honor that's given in the Quran is that uh, as role models, two women yes. are mentioned, as a Maryam, the wife yes. of... Uh, yes. The mother of Hazrat Isa so al Spiritually, yeah. they yeah. can certainly excel excel men, and mm. they can certainly become uh, uh, so advanced in this in this in, in this spirituality that mm. they become role models for for exactly. others for men. Yeah.
Okay, thank you very much for that. Uh, uh, thank you very much for those views, uh, uh, Philip. Uh, move on to another story. Uh, UK's biggest recruiters warn ministers not to hire agency staff to replace strikers. This is in The Guardian. Britain's biggest uh, recruitment and staffing companies have written to the government to protest against plans to replace striking workers with agency staff, warning them that this would further inflame strikes. What else did they say, Philip? It says that in a letter to Kwasi Kwarteng, the bosses of 13 companies, including Hayes, Adaco, Randstad and uh, Manpower, called on the business secretary to reconsider plans to repeal a decades-long ban on using agency workers to cover for picketing staff. Yes, we said that we can only see these proposals in flaming strikes, not ending them. The 13 group warned in the letter which was sent to Sarah Thelis, Thewlis, uh, Chair of the Recruitment and Employment Conference, REC. Uh, let's say what, uh, w- because there are other s- situations taking place, and uh, let's say what Mick Lynch uh, has been saying in the press. We've got people who are, who are doing full-time jobs who are having to take state benefits and use food banks. That is a national disgrace. What will they do if agency workers try to cross those picket lines? Well, we will picket them. What do you think we'll do? We run a picket line and we'll ask them not to go to work. Direct lie. If you are a Marxist, then you're into revolution and into bringing down capitalism. So, are you or aren't you? Richard, you do come up with the most remarkable twaddles sometimes. That's the unions lie. don't tell me who I am and whether or not I'm working class or whatever, any of those sorts of things. I didn't tell you you weren't working class. I don't, I don't even know your name. That's Onto the street. You can see what picketing involves. I can't believe this line of questioning. Picketing is standing outside the workplace to try and encourage people who want to go to work not to go to work. What else do you think it involves? You've also lied that we left negotiations on Saturday and went to a rally. There were no negotiations scheduled for Saturday. You are a liar. The pen- yes, and, and it goes on. Uh, mm-hmm. Mick Lynch was quite uh, uh, outstanding, actually, uh, Philip, in terms of uh, the, 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 that media that was, you know, uh, against socialism or against the rights of workers, even. Uh, and the Tory party is certainly struggling with him, aren't they? On the PR front. I, 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 I actually think um, I actually think this is this is this is being played out in Westminster, and there is a political to and fro. Mm-hmm. And, um, clearly, the, the, and the idea of, of repealing this law um, has has been around since 2015 uh, in the, with the Cameron government, and um, I think. I think I, I would approach it and, and, and view it uh, in, in, a, in a slightly different way from, from, from as you would expect, as to, to how, how the unions are approaching it. Mm-hmm. And I think, I, think, I think there's cross-party support in that the Labour Party haven't come out in support of stri- additional strikes. You know, um, now... Um, and, and under much criticism as well. They've been criticised for it. They they have because they are sort of friends historically seen as the friends of the of the unions, and they were the ones who brought in this law mm. uh, of um, not being able to hire agency workers um, when when strikes are occurring back in 1976. Yeah. So so, so why so why have the government refused to talk to to the unions uh, and have full conversation about this uh, rather than uh, just uh, ignoring them? Right. So. Um, I, I guess if we go back to 2021, 
their three-year public sector spending uh, review. And so all the, all the budgets have been allocated mm. to, to the management of, of all the public sector organizations. So the government is saying, well, you've got the budget. Mm-hmm. It's up to you to negotiate with, with the unions. You know, we've done, done what we can, you, you know, and uh, now it's up to you, over to you. And, and but, so but, guess, but with the hands tied back because they're giving them conditions about what uh, uh, forced redundancies and things like that. And at the same time, if I'm not mistaken, did the MPs not themselves give themselves a pay rise during this period? I think many of them did not take that pay rise. But it was I there to be taken, nothing it negotiated. Was it, it was there to be taken, wasn't it? In fact, it if not mistaken, some might have uh, given it to charity, the, the pay rise. But, but yeah. still money spent out of the coffers of the Treasury, uh, rather than saying that there should be no pay rise. Hence, they could st- stand better in front of the union and say, look, we didn't take it. We're not giving it to the bosses earning millions in, in, in bonuses, which they are. Um, yeah. But the workers themselves are the ones who are struggling. Yeah. So okay. So let's let, let's let's look at it uh, also. I think in, in 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 these kind of conversations, there's always you know focus on the workers and there's focus on on the management and government. But we should also not forget the consumer uh, in any of these discussions. Now, in public sec- in relation to public sector services, the consumer is mm-hmm. also the taxpayer that funds the services. Mm-hmm. So you and I will effectively end up paying for the increased pay settlement if that you know if it's 10 percent 15 percent whatever the rate of inflation is we will end up paying that either uh, as a result of higher prices or through higher taxes so that's that's something we need to to consider as well and that does focus the mind somewhat especially if the considered opinion is that in, this inflation is a temporary, temporary hike inflation, and it will come down uh, from from the sort of end of nature. It will start coming down to about five percent. Okay, Willie, you got a question? Yeah, yes, Philip. Uh, um, I want to know: Do you think that there is um, an underlying uh, a sense of uh, unfairness that's been uh, enacted by the government? Uh, especially in the light of uh, certain uh, uh, remarks, no, it was a statement made by I think the um, the uh, the secretary at uh, Ten Downing Street about uh, not uh, having any caps for uh, uh, bankers, uh, banker bonuses, uh, while restricting uh, and encouraging restriction of. Uh, pay rises for uh, for ordinary workers. Do you think that there is this sense that the Conservatives are more looking after the rich and not out after the poor? An, ocu- an accusation often made about the Tories. Mm. Mm. Well, first of all, in, in, in relation to um, looking after the most vulnerable, um, the Institute of Fiscal Studies has, which is an independent body, they have said that the measures taken by the government to support um, those on the lowest incomes and those on not so low incomes in relation to the energy price rises and the inflationary rises that we've seen, the various measures that they have taken mm. does cover the incremental cost. 
therefore, you know, the government is looking after the most the most vulnerable. In relation to the um, railway workers, for example, if we take a specific example and then contrast that with the banking sector and the, and the executives there, well, the government wants to introduce and modernise our our railway system and our network um, through the introduction of technology, which will necessarily mean a reduction in the number of employees. Um, theoretically, that should mean an increase in productivity. It should mean higher skilled jobs, and it should mean ultimately a better service and lower prices to the consumer. Now, the unions are saying we don't want to introduce that technology because it's going to mean a lack of jobs, etc., etc., etc. But the consumer, as a consumer, I'd rather have a, a you know a train service that runs on time, is reliable, uh, and is efficient, and where I'm getting value for money. So, modernisation versus protecting existing workers' rights it has always been a potential area of conflict, mm-hmm. unfortunately. Um, in, in relation, and, and I, I hope that that can be negotiated. And I, I believe the repealing of this proposed repealing of law is a negotiating move. So, it, 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 yeah. so, yeah, some negotiation does need here because at the end of the day, it's, yeah. the, it's the old blogs like you and me who will suffer when we're traveling to work. Yes. Uh, I hope uh, that uh, we don't get uh, train delays for this conference that's happening where the Amdi Muslim community is getting involved yes. uh, uh, on Tuesday and Wednesday, but mm. we'll come to that later. Well, yeah, but I just wanted to say, Philip, Philip I mean, uh, yeah. you know, the points that you've may, been, um, been making have been countered by the RMT. They say we're not against employing new technology. In fact, we were involved in, in, in the enactment or the introduction of new technology. What we do not want is forced redundancies. Mm. That's what he was he was saying. So uh, I don't think that the 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 way that you framed the the issue is it would be acceptable to the way that the RMT see it. Mm. I, th- I think we've we've discussed that topic, but thanks for raising that point, Ruleed. Uh Sorry, we uh, have to have balance, don't yeah, we? Yeah, no, no, Philip, I'm ever so That's sorry that I, I can't give you the right to respond because I think you covered it in your answer anyway. Uh, because only for time reasons, and I've got to move on to the next segment of our show. So, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much. Yeah, as always, a pleasure, and good luck with your uh, candidacy. Candidacy, and I hope that you get elected as an MP one day. Thank you very much. Okay. Request for prayers. Thank In, you. Indeed. Uh, right, Willie, uh, let's move on to our next uh, segment of the show, which is the Faith in Focus. We continue our on the epic life of the Prophet, the Holy Prophet of Islam. Peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. In the last program, we were discussing the illness and the demise of one of the permanents of the Holy Prophet, Abdullah bin Abay bin Salul, who died after the return from Tabuk. So who was Abdullah bin Abay bin Salul? And how did he cause so much distress to the Holy Prophet? Well, uh, yes, uh, it's always interesting to uh, run through the life of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, because we learn so many lessons from it, and mm. uh, this incident also teaches us something. Um, Abdullah bin Ubay uh, bin Salud was one of the chiefs of the Khazraj. Khazraj was one of the big five tribes of Medina, and prior to the arrival of the Holy Prophet, um, this Abdullah bin uh, um, uh, Sulu had been groomed to become king of Medina. 
but this plan was suspended after the advent of Islam, and this greatly upset him. Uh, he only accepted Islam, gr- well, what appears to be grudgingly after the Battle of Badr, but continued to be a thorn in the side of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him. He withdrew his men, for instance, uh, before the Battle of Uhud, when the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, was facing an army of 3,000. Uh, there were only uh, 1,000 in his side, uh, and by his withdrawal, they were left depleted uh, to just down to 700. So. Mm. That was one incident. Then he gave, uh, uh, he was um, involved in demoralization, the demoralize, demoralizing the inhabitants of uh, Medina during the siege. So the siege that took place when there was an army of something like 10,000 that had surrounded Medina were going to be attacking and laid siege to it. Um, he was among those who uh, was demoralizing the uh, the uh, the inhabitants, the the side that he was supposed to be on, and he's also the one that um, was uh, casting aspersions uh, on the wife of the Holy Prophet peace be upon him on her on her conduct. And uh, one famous incident was that uh, he said that uh, when he was on an expedition with the Holy Prophet peace be upon him, and returning, he said that on the return the most honourable will expel, expel the most mean, referring to the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, God forbid. Um, and uh, when this latest expedition that we're talking about, this expedition up north to um, meet the Roman army, uh, to the book to place, he uh, did what he did at Uhud. He started to march with the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, but then turned back uh, after part of the way. Although uh, on on this occasion, it has to be said, he may have done so with the approval of the Holy Prophet, and this was owing to his failing health. So Abdullah bin Abayi was not so, so well. That's why he turned back. Anyway, his condition had deteriorated by the time the Holy Prophet returned, and it is said that Abdullah bin Abayi actually asked for the Holy Prophet to visit him when he was ill, and despite the animosity shown by by him, uh, and the scheming that he was involved with against the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, of which the Holy Prophet knew. Uh, the Holy Prophet uh, did not bear a grudge. He he did what was asked. He went and visited him. And uh, this was despite the fact that Hazrat Umar uh, asked the Holy Prophet not to go. And he cited his actions. You know, this is what he's done. So why are you, you know, going to give him that mm. honor or privilege? going uh, visit uh, visit him but the holy prophet uh, peace be upon him as i said before would not be one to bear grudges no. and so he he did go uh, so why did uh, abdullah bin abay himself ask the holy prophet to to come and visit him because mm. he was dying after all and uh, he did not believe in the holy prophet yes um, interesting question and uh, there's various uh, accounts in the history books that you can find and um, it is possible that in, in his heart of hearts he realized that the Holy Prophet was true and uh, he was wrong to have behaved um, uh, the way that he had uh, hypocritically. Uh, but what is more likely, and this is found, uh, this is found consensus among many leading biographers and historians, is that he uh, stayed firm to his disbelief uh, right to the end. It wasn't him who asked the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, uh, but it was Abdullah Bayi's son 
who asked the Holy Prophet to come and visit his dying dad. And the son, it should be said, of Abdullah bin Bayi, unlike his father, was a very devout companion of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, and the Holy Prophet had a high regard for him. He fought on the side of the Holy Prophet in many a battle, and what is very significant is when his father insulted the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, he asked if he, if he himself could execute his father mm. for for this for this crime. So his loyalty to the Holy Prophet was, uh, you know, above reproach. And uh, the Holy Prophet also had great confidence in him. In fact, when he went on an expi- expedition after the Battle of uh, Uhud to confront Abu Sufyan, it was uh, Abdullah bin Abay's son that was uh, left in charge of Medina. Right. So that was the extent of uh, trust he placed in this man, the son of Abdullah bin Abay. Abdullah bin Abay may have been a hypocrite, but his son was a very, very loyal uh, and devoted companion and trusted companion. So uh, historians say that it's the likelihood is that it was the son who was anxious for somehow his father... Uh, to attain salvation and maybe the the benevolence of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, will do it. And he was visiting the Holy Prophet, uh, visiting when he was dying, would perhaps do the trick. A yearning every father for his son or son for his yes. father had or, or child for the mm. parent. Mm. So maybe that could well yeah. be a reason. And, and the Holy Prophet also led the funeral prayers of Abdullah bin Abina. Very famously, this incident mm. is reported. Uh, that seems quite unusual because he was not a believer, and mm. yet the, the funeral plays were led. Yes. So he was a known hypocrite. He had claimed to be a believer, ah. but he had he'd, he'd conducted himself in such a way that uh, cast doubt on the sincerity of his belief. Um, so, uh, uh, Quite correct. He did lead the uh, funeral prayer, and in fact, um, the son asked the Holy Prophet for uh, his shirt, the Holy Prophet's shirt, uh, so that his father could be buried in that garment. Mm. And despite the hurt he had caused, you know, again, the Holy Prophet did not bear any grudges, uh, willingly gave his own shirt as requested. Um, and there's some books that say that Abdullah bin Abay himself had asked before he died. Either way, it shows the generosity of the Holy Prophet. That's the character that, that is being displayed here of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him. Now, we know that some of the companions were not happy uh, that the Holy Prophet was going to lead the uh, funeral prayers of uh, what uh, he, he was described as a hypocrite who had caused so much grief. Mm. So, Hazrat Umar in particular it is said, even when, uh, insisted and even uh, tugged at the garment of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him. I mean, such, so, such was the strength of his feeling mm. that don't do this, you know, um, because this man has, and he listed the things, this man has done this, 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 and you're going to lead, you know, the funeral you know, prayers of, the, of this man. And then he also referred to a verse of the Holy Quran which said that even if you <coughs> pray, uh, that whether you pray for such people or not, even if you pray uh, um, uh, 70 times, mm. such people will not be, not will be not forgiven. Be forgiven. Mm. And the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, said to him, look, uh, to Hazrat Umar, he said, look, it's given me a choice whether you pray for him or not pray for him. Mm. And it's said that even if you pray for 70 times, he will not be forgiven. Well, I'll pray for him for 71 times. Then. Mm. You know, so this, again... 
uh, why it is significant it shows the uh, magnanimity magnanimity of the holy prophet the large heartedness of mm. the holy prophet peace be upon him mm. compassion of the holy compassion, prophet compassion well, exactly mm. the word i was thinking mm. revenge is never no. uh, the, the 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 lot of of of, an, of a believer no, no. and um, so even if with his most treacherous of enemies uh, those who plotted against him uh, they were not de- deprived of that compassion um and then uh, of course after this event took place later on a verse was revealed it says that never pray you for any of them that dies no stand by his grave for they disbelieved in the lineage message and died while they were disobedient mm. so this uh, uh, 71 times it was then really yeah, reference yeah, on that yeah. uh and i presume it gave a good message to others uh, about how compassionate islam was and yes. maybe that was the reason why people flocked to islam mm. because they were living amidst uh, uh, a culture where opposition and fighting others was yeah, was yes. the lord wasn't it for for this for the slightest of things that yes. they would yeah yeah now coming back to the battle itself that the book which was, this was all around it the death of abdullah bin abi happened after the expedition of the book but there is another incident is is there not that that happened about the relationship between the holy prophet peace and blessings of allah be upon him and the emperor of, of rome what was that well it appears from from this account that you know the 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 relationship between the holy prophet and uh, uh rome and the emperor of rome oh. were not um, were quite cordial um and in fact uh, the holy prophet peace be upon him probably wrote more than one letter oh. to the emperor of rome and uh, there is this account in bukhari i think it is which uh, uh, no is is in the um collection by ahmad bin hanbal Uh, about a letter being delivered to the emperor of rome while the holy prophet peace be upon him was in tabuk and the letter essentially invited uh, the emperor to islam uh, or to at least um, uh, uh, make allegiance mm. uh, um, to the holy prophet peace be upon him um and the what is reported by this particular individual Uh, who relates this account he says that i was the messenger who was sent back to the holy prophet peace be upon him and i was present when the letter was read out to the emperor and the emperor was inclined to accept islam uh, but the bishops were up in arms about this and they resisted it strongly and so the emperor sent a letter Uh, to the holy prophet through this particular gentleman his name is tanuki and uh, it asked uh, the uh, it cited certain questions uh-huh. and certain certain indicators and uh, i don't want to go into all of them because some of them uh, according to reports are suspect the uh, what is it as far as the reports are concerned there is some doubt as to how credible they are but one of the things that uh, the emperor asked uh, this messenger is to watch out for the word night whether that's used or not and so one of the uh, questions uh, that heraclius in this letter wrote was that you tell me or you in, in say to me that uh, um that uh, you invite me to islam and you say to me that i invite you to paradise uh, 
which is so vast that it encompasses uh, the earth and the and the heavens. And he said that if that is the case, where is hell? And to that, the Holy Prophet, uh, peace, uh, peace be upon him, replied that, what a strange question. When, uh, you know, when it is day, where does night go? So the word night was used there. Mm. But what I found interesting, and that's why I'm bringing this here, mm. is because I remember our fourth caliph, the Zabmizat Ahmed, also talking about heaven and hell in these terms. He mm. said that heaven and hell can be in the same uh, same place mm-hmm. because this is what the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, had mentioned. And uh, it was in this instance that that particular mention was made mm-hmm. that if uh, it doesn't, if um, you have uh, um, heaven uh, up in the skies and the earth, it doesn't mean that there is no space for hell. It can be in the same place. In the same place. We're talking about different dimensions. Yes, yeah. yes. And yeah. the Prophet Prophet also said that you make your heavens and earth. On uh, heaven and bar- yes. uh, paradise and hell yes. on, on this earth yes. here. So in this same place, you know, some people can be experiencing hell in even on this yes, earth. Yes, yes, correct. And some some people can, can be, be uh, realizing their dreams. You mm, know, yes, <laughs> of course. With the sun out, what, what, yeah. what other more dreams would you wish for? Uh, what was uh, uh, an interesting occurrences uh, yeah. that took place? Well, uh, there were several, but one particular one uh, worth mentioning. Can you yes, tell us that? Yes, this, uh, this is an interesting one. Again, it's, a, it's maybe a trivia question, but it's interesting. Uh, mm. It's the first time it seems uh, that uh, we know that the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, was led by somebody else in prayers. And uh, here uh, it's recorded, and this is by Mughira bin uh, Shaba, mm-hmm. that the Holy Prophet spent uh, one particular morning, a little more time on, on his ablutions. And when he got to where the congregation had gathered uh, for the Fajr prayer, it had already started and he had missed or was missing the first rikat. Uh, others on his arrival uh, um, um, said, mentioned to him, or motioned to him, not mentioned, motioned to him, uh, to take the imam, uh, but he refused to do so and allowed uh, the imam to carry on. When he had finished, the holy op- prophet offered the rakatis missed, right? Yeah, and caught up basically. And uh, and when uh, people, you know, had a go at the person who was leading, mm. the holy prophet said, "No, he's done the right thing. Right, do not have a go at him." Okay. And what do, do we know who he was? Yes, so it was Abdul Rahman bin Auf, and um, he was he's a very leading companion. Not very often mentioned, um, and he is supposed to be, as a result of this instance, the only person who led the Holy Prophet in prayer. Now, we know that Hazrat Abu Bakr may mm. also have done that. But, um, I was going to uh, ask you Yes, that. <laughs> but, but it is said that when the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, arrived, uh, when it came to Hazrat Abu Bakr leading the prayers, he actually stepped back. Yes. And insisted that the Holy Prophet uh, continue the uh, continue the prayer. He did not leave the Holy Prophet peace be upon him prayer. But in this instance, he did. And Abdul Rahman uh, bin Auf, uh, leading companion, very astute businessman, one of the first eight people who accepted uh, the Holy Prophet. In fact, he accepted the Holy Prophet only two days after Hazrat Abu Bakr uh, accepted uh, um, accepted the Holy Prophet. So, a very uh, leading companion. He was among those uh, 10 people who were given the glad tidings that they would um, uh, come what may, they will uh, achieve. Enter paradise. Yeah. They will, yes, yeah, and, they uh, will uh, achieve salvation. They will be uh, entering paradise. And he was also among those six that uh, Hazrat Umar uh, designated 
to be part of a committee that would uh, elect or select the next successor after Zuma when he was fatally wounded. Right. He appointed a, a, a committee, a six, and he was one of them. So he's a okay. very senior companion. Yes. N- not much we hear for about him. No. But very senior companion. The only companion, it seems, or the first companion, certainly, to have led, who, the, to led the, the Holy Prophet into prayer. Prophet into prayer. Yeah. <laughs> uh, on the return of uh, Tabuk, uh, the battle, how did the, compa- the the community receive him? Okay, so this is another, uh, I suppose, a trivia point. Um, it, it, when obviously, um, the Muslims of Medina were overjoyed. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's their reports in Bukhari, uh, how desperate they were to see him, that uh, they went to the outskirts of Medina and to a place called Saniyat al-Wada, uh, and uh, this is on the outskirts of Medina, and historians relate how women and children lined up there singing songs, and and one of them transla- translates, the full moon rose over us from Saniate, Saniate al-Wada, uh, and it is incumbent upon us to show gratitude for as long as anyone in existence calls out to Allah, O oh, messenger among us who comes with the exhortation to be heeded, you have brought to this city nobility, welcome, uh, welcome you who call us to a good way. So it's significant because from an academic and an historical context, some biographers, biographers claim that these songs were sung at the time when the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, first arrived in Medina after the Hijra. But uh, what uh, the argument uh, that settles it is that Taniyat al-Wada is in the north, the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, when traveling back from uh, from uh, Tabuk, was coming back from the north. And Saniyat al-Wada is in the north. Whereas when he entered Medina uh, during the Hijra, he entered from the south. And Taniyat al-Wada is not in the south. So these songs was definitely uh, sung at the time when the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, returned from Tabuk, not when he entered, uh, entered Medina. Uh, after the Hijra. And what about in terms of uh, the number of people who did not join the Holy Prophet? You know, just in Badr, some did not join, that's mm. mentioned in the Quran. Mm. There were some who didn't join in this battle. What was their um, sort of, what action was taken against You see, them? the difference is, uh, and this is significant, is that at Badr, it wasn't mandatory for everybody to come. But in this particular uh, expedition, the Holy Prophet had instructed everyone to join. Mm-hmm. So there's a difference. So th- those uh, who didn't join Badr, uh, it was a voluntary act, and it was meant to be voluntary. But in this instance, uh, there had to be legitimate reasons. Mm. Um, now, some did get uh, uh, permission not to go, and we all know that there, there was one, certainly Hazrat Ali wanted to know, go, but was specifically told by the Holy Prophet not to go because he had to look after uh, the families. Uh, but there were others, around 80 uh, of them, that stayed behind for no apparently legitimate reason. And it is related that the Holy Prophet, when he returned from the book, I mean, they were quite concerned. And it was the practice of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, that when he came back from an expedition, he would, the first thing he would do is go to the mosque, offer two rakats, and then sit with his companions. And it is on this occasion, then, uh, uh, on this instance, that those 80 would then were, were then came and, uh, you know, uh, made their uh, 
express their reasons to why they didn't go, I couldn't go. Right. And the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, would listen to them. Uh, he would not challenge them. Uh, he would not uh, ask for proof of their excuses mm-hmm. or what have you. Um, they were legitimate, legitimate, maybe not. They were perhaps fabricated. We do not know. The Holy Prophet uh, would certainly take the pledge of allegiance against uh, again. Right. So that was something significant, mm. and he would pray for them. Now, so they, um, but there were three that admitted that yes, we did not uh, go. We have got no legitimate reason. We're not going to make excuses. We're not mm-hmm. going to lie. And uh, one of them was Kaab bin Malik, and his account is related uh, by his son and preserved in Bukhari. It's a, it's a, a very, very interesting account. Mm-hmm. But it, the reason why we need to cover it, and perhaps we'll cover it in, ne- in the next uh, part of uh, the next edition, is that it gives us many, many lessons, um, and it's very useful um, to understand uh, what he went through because it tells us what, what it is about um, uh, the importance on telling the truth and that it is the, is the truth that will actually you know, uh, release you mm, mm. from the difficulty that you may have fallen in because of uh, what you did or what you didn't do right. when you should have done something. I mean, I mean the whole of this uh, scenario tells us a lot about the compassion of the Holy Prophet how he dealt with people who opposed him. It's a lesson that we need to take in our lives as well I and mean, when we are dealing with people. Um, and, and also aspects where, for example, uh, he was delayed for the prayers and had that not happened, we might not have known what to do if we missed part of a prayer and we mm. learned that as well. Certainly. Um and and it shows you the quality of the companions as well mm. um how high level of commitment they had and despite some who were a bit weak of faith who did not commit themselves the holy prophet did not have any sort of uh, punishments for them no. other than wanting just an allegiance that are they really committed to the cause yes. and uh, and and that's something for us to ponder over ourselves about our yeah. own faith is that yes. right yes no, no absolutely and the important thing is that he he would, would not claim to look at people's hearts mm. you know that's the important thing if somebody i mean this is this we see and this is a lesson for for all muslims that if somebody said that he was a muslim he still believed even though his conduct mm. would uh, would uh, lead you to a different conclusion, he would accept that. He would not claim to look in their hearts, oh no, you're not really a Muslim because yeah. he did not accompany mm. me. They said, we're Muslims, you know, this is our excuse, he accepted it. We live in a world where people make judgments on others, whether they yes. must ask some of these know mm. very well about that. We're coming to the 11 o'clock news, really. Thank you very much, and we'll cover the Kaab bin Malik story in the next episode. Mm-hmm. You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text as this is a recording and lines are now closed. Weekend World on Voice of Islam. Welcome back to the Weekend World Show with Asan Ahmadi. You're listening to Voice of Islam on DAB Radio, on mobile and online 24 hours a day. The Voice of Islam conveying the true message of Islam, the message of peace and promoting love for all 
hatred for none. We're now moving on to our next segment of the show, which is Behind the Headlines. Just been called for Donald Trump. The decision taken to join the common market has been reversed. The government should call a general election. Weekend World. Questions to the Prime Minister. Behind the Headlines. Chapter 17, verse 2 of the Holy Quran, Allah says, Glory be to him who carried his servant by night from the sacred mosque to the distant mosque, the environs of which we have blessed, and we might show him some of our signs, or that we might show him some of our signs. Surely he alone is the hearing, the seeing. Believe the Mirage and the Isra relate to the epic night journeys undertaken by the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, to the distant mosque, i.e. Jerusalem, and to the heavens. There is confusion among scholars as to whether these were part of the same journey or separate events. Indeed, there is a disagreement as to the nature of these journeys, whether they were physical, literal, or was the Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, transported to his destination in bodily form, or was it in the form of a dream or a vision to explain some aspects of his mission? Joining us this morning is uh, Dr. Freed, author of many articles on aspects of history, on Islamic history. He uh, used to read many of his articles in the Muslim Herald back in the 70s and 80s. Uh, Dr. Freed, was, when he was with us last time, spoke of the concept of dreams and how to interpret them. Uh, with that topic in mind, uh, let's ask Dr. Freed this, about this epic journey. Was it a reality or was it just a, a dream? Uh, Dr. Freed, assalamu alaikum. Welcome back. Uh, always a pleasure having you and getting an insight about some of Islam's philosophies and histories. When you were with us last, you spoke on the interpretations of dreams. Uh, but many believe that the Isra and Mirage were actual events that took place, though they appear to be more like a, uh, something of a vision given to the Holy Prophet. Can you throw some light on this debate? Firstly, what is the literal meaning of Mirage and Isra, and are there any Quranic references to this? Well, yes. Uh, the, um, let's start off by saying that uh, these experiences, the Mirage and the Isra of the Holy Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings of, upon him, were ones uh, were not even not dreams, not visions, uh, e even greater of extraordinary grandeur. Uh, to describe them just as an or, uh, as an ordinary vision mm. would not be just to give justice to it, and uh, these were uh, uh, this experience was uh, given or bestowed upon the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of God be upon him, because in the light of his lofty and immense magnificence, magnificence. Mm. So, uh, so even to call them a, a, a vision. Would, uh, would not give it justice. Would it's something more extraordinary. It, yeah. But uh, but to ask to to go back to your question, the mirage mirage basically means uh, a spiritual ascension. Yes. And isra means to uh, it's a night journey to take someone from one place to another by night. Okay. Uh, so uh, 
and these occurred, uh, the Isra and the Miraj, as far as the evidence shows, occurred at uh, uh, different times and uh, went to different destinations. So we, the, although there's confusion among scholars, mm-hmm. for the, this, uh, basically among some Muslim scholars and a lot of non-Christian, non-Muslim scholars. And that's why this uh, confusion uh, has, has come to reign in, so, in, the, in, in, this, uh, yeah, in this debate. Right. So there, there are two separate events that took place. Yeah, that, that's uh, from, from all the evidence uh, we can see yes. that even is mentioned in two separate verses mm-hmm. of the Holy Quran, at, which were revealed at different, on different occasions. Right. So that's so, a, that's an important factor to take in into all yes. this, right? Absolutely. And also remember that uh, there's also uh, an indication that the mirage, the ascension to heaven, may have occurred twice, may have occurred early in mm. the prophet's uh, ministry, right? And uh, later on uh, in in the fifth year, yes, uh, which is mentioned in uh, Surah Al Najm. So. There may have been two occurrences. Right. And this could uh, then explain, possibly, that uh, these were explanations, or these contained some explanations to the Holy Prophet, and this was one form of uh, conveying it to the Holy Prophet by God Almighty. Yes, it is a conveying of the Sharia. Yes. Um, uh, to, to the Holy Prophet Muhammad, a similar in a way that when Moses went up, to, to, to see Sinai. he also right. he has experienced in Isra, yes, uh, which which is mentioned in the in the Holy Quran, mm. uh, and uh, it's also stated that many all the prophets have experienced this have this sort of experience, right. but none of that uh, the the super experience experience uh, which was vouchsafed to the Holy Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings God call him, his the the spiritual heights of that. Uh, uh, of the Holy Prophet's uh, mirage uh, uh, could, could, far could, could, could be comparable, far, yeah, yeah. Far greater than any other any prophet. Others. So, yeah. what what about the mirage then? What are the details and circumstances around this journey? <coughs> Give us a bit more insight into this one. So, the circumstances of the mirage, which is mentioned in the Holy Quran, and like I say, this was the fifth year. So, we don't have details of the first mirage, but. The, the what's mentioned in the Holy Quran that it was a spiritual ascension into the heavens. Uh, he, he virtually saw God Himself. But when we say He's the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon Him, saw God, he, not with His physical eyes, but with His heart. Hmm. Uh, and uh, the heart doesn't have eyes, but it is the sense, the uh, the experience. As, when we, I suppose we all have this experience, uh, our own experiences of love or of uh, love or uh, uh, we experience uh, sadness. Mm. It's all in the heart. And it's, it's all uh, in the heart. That's it's, right. it's difficult to explain to someone. Mm. It's within your own self. Yeah. So in that experience, the Holy Prophet virtually he, see, he saw God Himself in all His glory. Would be similar yeah. to, as you mentioned, about Prophet Moses, uh, peace be upon him, when he went to Mount Sinai and, and he saw God in front of him. It would have been a similar experience. Yes, and as, as we know that uh, he couldn't, he wanted to see God, but uh, when God did manifest Himself, then uh, he, he, could be, he, he collapsed mm. unconscious, he couldn't uh, take it. Sure. But uh, the Holy Prophet, far greater spiritual uh, sort of uh, qualities, yes, uh, strength, and then, uh, so I here it's although it was still 
uh, it may not be physical. Because of his higher status, every yes, yes. every aspect of his revelations and, and vision would, would always be of a higher status. Than any other uh, exactly, yeah. And, and when did this happen, and what were the circumstances around this mirage? Well, uh, so in the fifth, I said in the fifth year of the call, uh, he met. Uh, he, he went up to the heavens, the first, second, third, right of the seventh heaven. He met uh, various prophets. Met Hazrat uh, Adam. Uh, on the first uh, f- first level, and then ultimately he I mean, he he met uh, Jesus, Moses, and uh, uh, and eventually met uh, Hazrat Ibrahim al-Islam, Abraham, the on the seventh heaven, uh, received instructions from God regarding number of prayers, for example, and uh, we can discuss this later. Um, and then he reached the 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 final frontier, as it were, the low tree, designated as the low tree, um, where basically is the boundary between heaven and uh, heaven and earth. You could you could say, mm. but he reached that boundary which, which no man has ever treaded before, as or treaded sort of in a in a spiritual sense. Right. And uh, he reached the ultimate which a man or a human being could, could reach. Mm-hmm. So, and, and what sort of things were explained in this journey? Well, it's, uh, we, we, we can go through that in more detail later. Okay. As the, it's, 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 uh, you know, he went with Jibrail, the, the, uh, the uh, archangel. The, arch, the archangel. Uh, it's it's a it's, it's quite uh, detailed the the whole uh, journey. So do, do you want me to go through the whole journey? Shall we go through that or? Um, it's, it's, uh, well, uh, well, well, let's try ahead. to distinguish between the two first. I think we'll yeah, have to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's yeah, we'll discuss it because this is generalities I've explained to you. Sure. That basically this is a journey from uh, uh, the and from where from uh, Masjid al Haram, which was the Kaaba, uh, up to. The, the ultimate uh, frontier with uh, where where God was. Okay. So, uh, the <laughs> he was sleeping in the Kaaba, uh, and uh, the, the, he was taken up from there, and then he re- returned from from that. Uh, okay. To the same place, and you know, yeah. yeah. Uh, Doctor Doctor, am I right in understanding that you describe the Mirage uh, journey, and that the Isra was different? Uh, how was is the Isra different? Well, okay. So, the, the, as I said, the Miraj was the ascension to heaven, mm-hmm. and from the uh, Kaaba. Uh, from 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 the Kaaba, uh-huh. um, because the Holy Prophet was asleep in the Kaaba, and uh, we will come to that again. Uh, whether he was asleep, whether he went bodily or not, that we'll discuss that in a second. But the Isra uh, occurred in the. Uh, it's mentioned in Surah Bani Israel. Uh, it's mentioned, it's a, which was in the 11th year of prophethood, or some people say it's in the 12th year just before the prophet migrated to Medina. Uh, and in that, uh, this night journey, which is different from the Miraj, in fact, both are referred to as Isra. Remember this, both are actually referred to Isra. That is why uh, they, they may, have, may have been some confusion. But because the the mirage, the mirage is uh, the Isra, which went up to the heavens, is of much of a loftier degree. That is, that's why it's been referred to as the mirage. Mm. But uh, in the Isra, the journey was from 
the from uh, Mecca to the, the to Jerusalem. It's a night journey. Again, the Holy Prophet Sallam reached Jerusalem. He met uh, the earlier prophets. Uh, he met uh, Moses and Jesus and uh, Abraham, and he led them in prayers. And uh, uh, and then he returned. Uh, some say that he actually went to the heaven as well, but uh, not all commentators uh, agree on this. So, so that's basically the differences between the two. One was an extraordinary visit to the different levels of heaven, right up to the final uh, meeting with uh, virtually God Himself. Mm-hmm. And the other was just the transportation from Mecca to Jerusalem. Yeah, and you say that these these were extraordinary visions. The visions isn't sufficient to describe them. What sort of evidence do we have that these were visions and and, and not as some claim to be literal? Well, you see, if the Holy Prophet had ascended physically, uh, he would have seen God with his physical eyes. Would he not? You know, mm. but the 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 uh, uh, so it's not it's not physical, and also uh, you know the, the let's be quite logical. We don't want to go into mythology. We want to separate myth from reality, and uh, we see in mythology the Greek gods, Hindu deities, uh, other you know the uh, uh, Norse uh, gods flying in the skies. Uh, you know, there's no air travel in those days, no space travel. Mm. We're talking literally about we're going to the heaven or we're going across to Jerusalem. Jerusalem in those days, you couldn't do it in a day. You can do it now, of course, but you couldn't do it in those days. And uh, as far as the religious uh, belief is concerned about uh, traveling into the sky or into the heavens or flying into the sky in the heavens or ascending, mm-hmm. uh, we only know of two prophets who are... Uh, presumed to have done so mentioned in the Bible as stated in the Bible Elijah and Jesus and uh, the Elijah the, the ascension and his return has been cleared up by Jesus himself who said that John the Baptist came in his spirit so we have cleared that up right and Hazrat Mizra Ghulam Ahmad the Islam, the founder of the Muslim community has clarified that Jesus uh, didn't ascend to heaven in a physical body. Uh, he returned in, his, in the same spirit. And Jesus died a natural death. Right. So that dispels that argument that no one can go physically up to the sky. But if, if you want, want to, uh, so to go back to the uh, what the people believed at that time, uh, the the hadith mentions that the Holy Prophet, when he went and saw God, the heart. Uh, in the the uh, in the in the in the verses relating to the mirage, it says very clear, clearly, the heart the heart of the prophet lied not in seeing what he saw, it was the heart of the prophet which witnesses. Uh, we and we uh, in 1761 we made not the vision which he showed thee, but as a trial for men. Uh, Ibn Abbas relates that the Holy Prophet saw Allah two times through his heart. So, uh, Hazrat Aisha, may God be pleased with her, has related that whoever thinks that the Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings of God be upon him, saw his Lord, saw his Lord literally, he attributes a great lie on God. Haven't you heard that Allah says that the eyes do not reach him? 
but he reaches the eyes. And uh, there's another which is quite categorical uh, hadith by Bukhari, which proves that this journey was spiritual. Uh, uh, in the beginning, the hadith states that the Holy Prophet was sleeping in Kaaba, and he ends with the words that when he woke up, he was still in the Kaaba. So this shows that the whole vision was seen by his heart. Uh, that was awake while his uh, eyes were sleeping. Uh, and also, the, as, as regards the Isra, uh, he was uh, sleeping in the house of his cousin, Umehani, and she also relates that he, he physically, his body never left the place. So these are all clues, uh, very strong, uh, not, not clues, strong evidence. Mm. That these these were this was a spiritual ex- experience. Right now, uh, in terms of uh, the the journeys, uh, th- as you said, these were spiritual journeys. There were messages contained therein, and there was the Sharia aspects of uh, explanations of various Sharias. Can you give us a bit more information, both of the Mirage first, and then of the Isra? What were the key messages? What were the the aspects of Islamic Sharia that were contained therein, and what do we learn from them? It's uh, like I've said. It's very detailed, but uh, we 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 see the Holy Prophet Sallallahu was uh, resting in with regard to the Mirage. Uh, the whole the Prophet Jibrail uh, approached the Holy Prophet. Uh, it's related. He woke him up, brought him to the fountain of Zamzam. He cut open his breast. After which he thoroughly cleansed the cleansed the heart of the Holy Prophet. Peace and blessings of Allah be upon him with pure water. So, so you know this. This is definitely alludes to the fact this is a dream. You can't physically open up the heart and cut it open and uh, replace it with uh, with pure water. Uh, he sent it to the heavens. Uh, the, the gatekeeper opened the door, welcomed the holy prophet, and uh, presented with the greeting of peace. Then uh, he, the. the uh, the, the this was uh, the Hazrat uh, Jibrail explained to him that this was Adam, and uh, then he went to the second heaven and saw uh, met another two two people who warm, who welcomed him Jesus and John, then took him to the third fourth fifth heavens, and at the sixth heaven he met Moses he welcomed him in the same manner, uh, and also interestingly uh, this is alludes to the. The the differences between the two dispensations of of Moses and the Holy Prophet Muhammad peace and blessings be of Allah be upon him because Moses started to weep and at this someone asked Oh Moses why do you weep and Moses said Oh my Lord this young man came from behind me but his community shall enter paradise more so than my own so Oh my Lord I do not believe that someone could come after me yet surpass me still. So this uh, uh, is a prophecy that the Islam would far, or the Muslims would far surpass the previous, all the followers of previous religions, including the followers of, of Moses, in their spiritual uh, greatness. And uh, it's, it's, and, and then you know the move forward. He's met here that Ibrahim Islam and like uh, remember that Hazrat Adam and Hazrat uh, Ibrahim, all the, uh, they were the grandfathers of the, in, in a sense, 
of the Holy Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu and they greeted him, uh, presented his greetings of peace. And then uh, the Holy Prophet moved forward and reached where no man had laid foot before. Uh, he heard the, of the sound of many pens writing from above him, which, was, which were as if the pens of decree and destiny. And then he saw a low tree, which was the final point of relation between the heaven and this world. And from it began the final abode of paradise. And uh, then he saw an inexplic uh, inexplicable manifestation, a majestic manifestation of God. Uh, the Holy Prophet says that words have not, not the power to describe it. And uh, then the, uh, the Holy Prophet was there shown uh, four rivers, two rivers, the physical rivers of the world, he was told by uh, the, the, the angel Gabriel, Gabriel, Gabriel and then uh, the other two, uh, two rivers were physical rivers of the world, the Nile and the Euphrates, mm -hmm. the other two are hidden rivers which flow to paradise. Uh, he also saw the, that Gabriel was adorned with 600 wings. So again, this uh, shows, uh, uh, it's an indication that this was a, a majestic dream or a domestic vision, not mm. like so we've we, we decided it was never a dream, it was a majestic vision of uh, greatness. Indeed. And, and, and in terms of the five daily prayers that we uh, we pray, yes. uh, what is the relevance to to this mirage? Well, well, well uh, as I said at the beginning, you know, we, 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 the Holy Prophet, the reason, the, the reason he was bestowed this opportunity to meet God was the same, you could say, that Moses went to see God and was given the Ten Commandments. Mm. And similarly, it is said that the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of God be upon him, experienced a mirage early on, which explained to him some basic tenets of the Sharia. But in the second mirage, or the real, the, the, the Miraji which is mentioned in the Holy Quran, uh, there was mention, the, he was given uh, several injunctions, and one of them was the ordainment of the Holy, uh, the, 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 the 50 year of the, well, of, of the, of the daily prayers, which right. are five prayers, yes. but uh, uh, in a metaphorical form, what is explained, what we have told is that uh, uh, he was actually, that the injunction was for 50 prayers. Right. And when he returned, Moses asked him, uh, what injunctions have you been given? And he said, he said that um, the, the, the ordainment regarding uh, is of 50 prayers. And when Moses heard this, he was startled and said, I'm experienced on account of my dealings with Bani Israel. In no way will your community be able to bear so many prayers. Thus go back and request God to lighten these commands. So then he returned... Uh, a few times because he reduced the first time it was reduced by 10 to 40, then it was reduced to 30, then reduced to 20, and finally it was reduced to 5. And even when it was reduced to 5, Moses stopped the Holy Prophet again and said, even these are too many. <laughs> go go back and request for further leniency. Upon this, uh, the Holy Prophet returned again. Uh, no, uh, when it was down to 10, mm. he, he said that uh, this is still too many. Um, uh, and then when it came down to five, he said, uh, I think you should go back again. I've seen the Bani Israel, they were not able to perform even less worship than this. Right. And the Holy Prophet refused, saying, now I feel embarrassed to return again. Mm -hmm. And at this, a hidden voice was heard to say, Oh, Muhammad, 
These are five prayers, but they are equivalent to 50, for we have fixed a reward of 10 prayers for every prayer. Right. So basically, uh, the, 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 what, it, what it tells us is that God is magnanimous, and it was always ordained for five prayers. It's not that God kept changing his mind, but it was always ordained that there would be five prayers, but these would be worth 50. Yes. Yes. That's, that, that, that's mm. the, the message we get from this, not that... Uh, uh, it's, it's just and and, and there in the, uh, these visions are there to explain things rather than being a literal discussion. Yes. So, so you you evaluate a deduction from that, and and God, when He gives people a perception to understand this, then they can explain it. As as you mentioned, yes. the promised Messiah, the founder of the Amdiya Muslim community, certainly understood for all of this and has explained it. Uh, in abundance in his books and his and his writings, uh, what about the significance of Isra? How, uh, what was the key aspects of that journey, and what do we learn from it? Well, the Isra on uh, in that it is related in hadith that uh, these are just uh, the the general uh, encounter of what happened is. Uh, one night the Holy Prophet saw that an angel came to him and uh, he was presented uh, with an animal uh, like a like a horse uh, named Burak, <coughs> extremely beautiful. He was presented before him, he mounted it, he mounted it. He took the Holy Prophet to Jerusalem. Uh, he reached Jerusalem very quickly. Uh, he entered the mosque. Uh, he, they, uh, at that time, obviously, there was no mosque, but it was shown that there was a mosque there or the Temple of Jerusalem. Uh, and remember, at that time, it was under the control of the Romans, and uh, the the Jews had virtually lost control of it. There's no temple as such uh, existed at that time. Um, so the the uh, he uh, entered the mosque. Uh, there's a company of past prophets, which is Abraham, Moses, and Jesus. I remember also in both uh, in both of these uh, visions he saw Moses and Jesus, because these were the prophets with whose people the Muslims were going to be associated with for for the future had a long would have a long relationship, uh, positive and negative over the coming centuries and from for time forever basically. Uh, the holy prophet offered his salat with them, in which he led the, he led the congregation. So this is again. Uh, a sort of a prophecy that he would be the lead prophet, and uh, his dispensation, uh, his the, his religion would be the leader of all the other religions. Uh, after this, Hazrat Jibril presented the Holy Prophet with two cups. In one of them was milk, the other was alcohol. The Holy Prophet chose the cup of milk and ejected the, the alcohol, upon which Gabriel said. You have understood that which is natural. If you had taken the cup of alcohol, your community would have gone astray. And again, it's uh, it's uh, so obvious now that uh, so many, unfortunately, in the Muslim world, uh, people, you know, the alcohol. Some people, Muslims, have, or the Muslims who who've drunk alcohol or gone away from the basic teachings of Islam, have just gone completely astray and lost the real. Uh, the the beauty of being uh, a true Muslim. Indeed. Yeah. 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 Uh, obviously, uh, these are important visions that we must understand, and as you've explained very thoroughly, 
that uh, it is a message that is contained within which is more important than anything else. And if the Holy Prophet had physically traveled to this, he wouldn't have made uh, it wouldn't have made any sense other than a magical trip. And then if you go into the realms of magic, then a religion can no longer be taken seriously, uh, I would have thought. And uh, this is why we don't believe that Hazrat Isa physically rose to heaven either. Yes, uh, uh, I mean, the, one of the reasons why this confusion has come into being is, is the, uh, the reaction of some Muslims or trying to rebut the allegations of, uh, of uh, the Christians. Mm that our prophet has gone to the heavens and your prophet has not been able to do so. Yes. And in this regard, some Muslims got, got, uh, started uh, using the argument that, yes, but the Holy Prophet also went up to the heavens mm. physically. And I think this is where the confusion came in. Yes. Uh, the, 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 disbelief, the, 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 the disbelievers of Mecca also wanted the Holy Prophet to perform mm -hmm. this miracle. Uh, that he should ascend to the skies before their very eyes. Indeed. And the reply they received was, uh, 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 Kul Subhana Rabbi, yeah. Holy is my Lord, say Holy is my Lord, that it is against the glory, wisdom and glory of God Almighty to show mm. palpably uh, obvious miracles in, the world of, in this world of trials, thus undermines the wisdom and value of belief in the unseen. We believe in the unseen. Indeed. So, Hazrat Mirza Ghulam Ahmad, uh, the uh, promised Messiah has said, how is it possible that something being against the divine law mm. should not be permissible for the Holy Prophet, who is the best of prophets, yes. but be permissible, permissible for Jesus or Elijah? Of course. Yes, so, yes. Yeah. Uh, Dr. thank you. Uh, in fact, it reminds me of uh, 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 Mehdi Hassan is a very good journalist and defends Islam a lot. And he was having a debate with or a discussion with Richard Dawkins, who's an atheist. And the one question Richard Dawkins asked him was, "Do you believe that Holy Prophet travelled on a on the Burak physically in that journey?" And uh, Mehdi Hassan, because of what he was taught, said yes. And uh, basically, uh, Dawkins was mocking him. Yes. that he believes in such a thing and you've explained it wonderfully well that why it is not a physical journey and it was a spiritual journey so Jazakallah again once again Can for I that finish off on one on the uh, saying of uh, the yes of, indeed, of course that uh, like I've said that the, both these uh, journeys on spirit were spiritual nature and uh, it, it uh, the professor has said that uh, relate that regarding the the spiritual greatness of the whole of the holy prophet muhammad sallallahu mm. that he is vouchsafed these because uh, the the revelational experience it denotes is of the mightiest degree mm. a mightier revelation is unthinkable it is called zul ufukil Allah, the master of the loftiest horizon because it is a manifestation of divine revelation of the highest order it is also known as ramar ra he, he saw what he saw mm. For the comprehension of this condition is beyond human ken, imagination, or fancy. Right. This super condition was vouchsafed to the one and only person in the entire world, namely the perfect man, the Holy Prophet Muhammad. Peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. What a wonderful way to finish that segment of the show. Thank you very much, Dr. Freed, and thank you for joining yeah, us yeah. and giving us your insights. Right. Walaikum salam. Right, Walid, uh, yeah. we'll move on to our community news. Before we do that, we'll welcome uh, Shahid Khan, uh, who's in the studio this morning after a long time. Welcome, Shahid. Yes, thank you very much. Yes, uh, we'll be looking forward to the sports. What, have we, what are we going to be discussing today in the sports? Well, there's been a lot going on, not, not just on the field itself, but off the field here as well, by the looks of it. <laughs> and we had those so-called circus shenanigans in Wimbledon, not far from here. That's right.
Yes, the two incidences of note are to be to be discussed possibly. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay, we'll we'll look forward to listening. I hope you're enjoying the show and listening to our uh, indeed uh, very senior and very educated uh, contributors to the show. Uh, right, we'll leave the going on to the community news now. Mm-hmm. Weekend World Community News. Uh, uh, The International Ministerial Conference on Freedom of Religion or Belief is taking place this coming Tuesday, Wednesday, the 5th and 6th of July in London. The conference will bring together government, civil society, uh, faith and belief groups to agree to action, prevent of freedom uh, of religion or belief, violations and abuses, and also to protect and promote freedom of religion and belief international. The conference program will be wide-ranging and inclusive, in, uh, involving a diverse set of participants. Uh, and Fiona Bruce, the special envoy to the Prime Minister for the Freedom of Religion or Belief, uh, said this uh, uh, to promote the event. Greetings from the UK Parliament. I'm delighted to be speaking to you as the Prime Minister's special envoy for freedom of religion or belief. And I'm equally delighted to be able to talk to you about an international ministerial conference which the UK is hosting on the 5th and 6th of July this year. It's a conference about freedom of religion or belief, or FORB for short. Why is this conference so important? Well, it's important because all around the world today, even in the 21st century, millions of people are being deprived an education or a job or a home or access to justice or liberty, even to life itself, simply on account of what they believe. And so we're hosting this conference here in the UK so that we can bring together people from around the world to look at how we can address this situation. That was Fiona Bruce, uh, the Freedom of Religion or Belief Special Envoy to the PM. Joining us this morning, Willie, this is uh, Azza Chaudhry. He is the lead for the all-party parliamentary group for the Amdi Muslim community, working closely with NGOs to promote freedom and belief. Assalamu alaikum, Azul, can you hear me? Assalamu yes, I can hear you. Thank you very much for joining us, and I think you're playing a, a major role in organizing this for the Amdi Muslim community at this event. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about this conference and what are the main objectives it's, uh, it's, it's trying to achieve? Yes, no, absolutely, and thank you for having me. Um, as you alluded to in the introduction, so this conference is taking place on the 5th and 6th of July, so Tuesday and Wednesday this coming week. And essentially, it's to increase global action on freedom of religion and belief for all. Um, be that for Christians in the Middle East, or be that uh, for you know Buddhists in, in China, mm. or Ahmadi Muslims in Pakistan, it is about getting uh, sort of key actors, parliamentarians, um, governments, faith and belief representatives into one room, one place, uh, and and see how we can sort of progress that forward agenda together and raise awareness uh, overall. Get get senior peoples together to discuss these serious issues, as you mentioned. Uh, the AMA have been persecuted in many them. The Muslim community have been persecuted in many countries. Uh, have the UK government and other governments uh, been supporting us? Can you outline some of the key aspects of the persecutions against uh, them, the Muslim community, and uh, why this conference could help? Yeah, absolutely. So, so the Amdi Muslim community, in particular in Pakistan, is the only religious community to be targeted by the constitution and just by way of background in 1974 the prime minister then uh, amended the pakistan constitution to declare amdi's non-muslim and in addition to that then general Zia in 1984 
um, enacted Ordinance 20, which made made, made it a criminal offence um, punishable by three years in imprisonment if an Amli called themselves Muslims, referred to their faith as Islam, called their place of worship, mosque, etc. And the impact of that is that, you know, since then, 273 Amli Muslims have been killed for their faith. Um, and many have been imprisoned. Currently, we have six um, prisoners of conscience within Pakistan. Um, and there is also a completely unjustified extension of the um, Electronic Crimes Act, which means that MBs are now monitored by WhatsApp, social media, and anything, any material they share regarding the community could lead to their imprisonment. Mm. Um, and you, you ask around how the UK government is, is um, assisting or helping. Um, obviously, we have Lord Ahmed um, within the Foreign Office um, and also within the government. We have sort of a, a, a wide range of individuals who are aware of the issue um, and do regularly raise it with Pakistan and various other high commissions across the world. Um, and we work very closely with Fiona Bruce and, and the Ford Forum. Um, there will be a delegation visit to Pakistan in September as well that is currently in plan. Uh, to meet with ministers, to meet with individuals from civil society there to raise this matter further. Yeah, just before Waleed comes in, Waleed wants to ask a question. I just want to check, uh, in terms of uh, these visits to Pakistan and the ministerial support that we're getting, these are important, are they not, for politicians to support and and address these issues? Because if the the Muslim community on its own is often going to be ignored if if we try to address these issues. No, absolutely. I think the, the wider sort of support network we can get, the better. And I think politicians in the UK are very um, aware of the issue, but are also very supportive of it because, you know, the UK is a democracy, it values freedom of religion. And the most important thing for the UK government is to make sure that, you know, across the world, people um, do ha- sort of value the, the, the rights and the freedoms that the United Kingdom ensures for its own citizens. Mm. Uh, and uh, just as a way of background, Back in 2018, this Forbes agenda really gained prominence when the Prime Minister appointed a Freedom of Religion envoy, which currently is Fiona Bruce, but the first um, holder of that office was Lord Ahmed. And the focus then by Jeremy Hunt, the then then Foreign Secretary, was to focus on Christian persecution in the Middle East, and that agenda was pushed uh, through by Prince Charles as well. So it's really gained prominence over the last few years. And we hope we can we can uh, we can make sure that this obviously continues. Hmm. Um, <clears throat> um, thank you uh, for joining us. Um, t- tell me, um, what are the Amdi Muslim community doing uh, to promote this uh, event or to highlight it? Yes, a very good question. Um, so throughout the two days, um, on the fifth of July, we have two events: uh, one on prisoners of conscience. And one is a screening of a special documentary um, on Amdi Muslim persecution in Pakistan that was filmed just, uh, I think, three, four months ago uh, within Rabwa and other parts of Pakistan. Um, so both of these events will take place on the 5th of July, uh, one within the actual um, conference centre and one within Parliament. Uh, and the, the event will be chaired by Jeremy Hunt, the first one. UK former foreign secretary. Uh, we are also expecting um, Rashad Hussain, who's the US ambassador for freedom of religion, to join the panel, uh, as well as the national president of the um, Amdi Muslim Community UK um, and Archbishop Angelos. We had the pleasure of meeting His Holiness um, just a just a week or, two, or so ago. Mm. Uh, and we'll, and <clears> one thing, sorry, I forgot, I forgot to mention. We also have an exhibition stall throughout those two days. Uh, mm. One of eleven stalls. 
where around 700 delegates will have the opportunity to um, further interact um, on brochures and information and material regarding the persecution uh, that the, the community faces. Mm. Uh, I can I can see the the impact of this kind of um, effort in raising awareness of um, the injustice that is being experienced. But what do you think are going to be the practical differences that this this kind of conference is going to make? Yeah, no, it's a good question, and it's um, there's a lot of discussions internally at the moment around what are the objectives we'd like to achieve. I, I guess I, the first and foremost one is raising awareness. Um, a lot of people attending the conference may not be aware uh, that, you know, for instance, the Ahmadiyya Muslim community is the only religious community in Pakistan that is explicitly targeted by the constitution. I think I think raising awareness will be first and foremost the, the big objective. But secondly, I think it's about making sure that we have some material outcomes from this conference um, you know, for people on the ground. How do we improve their situation? Uh, that obviously is easier said than done, um, but we, we have seen in the past, for instance, in Pakistan, um, some very positive outcomes, such as the release of Asya Bibi, um, who was a Christian um, who was in prison, but then released um, after a long time, but then within prison. Now, we're not, I'm not suggesting by any means that you know, this, will, this conference will trigger all of these actions again, but at least it will um, raise awareness, it will bring the issue to the forefront um, and I think that that is the, the most important aim mm. for, for from this conference. Yeah, th- thank you very much for sharing <coughs> that. In terms of uh, you are a lead at the All Party Parliamentary Group for the Andhra Muslim Community, um, and uh, in terms of their role and uh, their activities, uh, how important is it to have a group like that? And uh, how uh, what sort of impact are they having uh, on uh, being addressing the issues of uh, persecution of Ahmadis? Yes, no, it's a very important group. Um, it's current, So we had our AGM, I think, two weeks ago now uh, to sort of reaffirm for the next year. Um, Siobhan McDonough, obviously, is our chair, and we have uh, several vice chairs, including Lord Alton, um, and representation from across all main British parties. Mm. Uh, the APPG, obviously, very instrumental. If you remember, back in 2020, we launched our first ever report into the persecution of Andy Muslims, mm-hmm. uh, which can be accessed via our website. That obviously gained a lot of traction. It um, is still quite prominent. It's uh, been distributed to all speakers within Washington, D.C. last year for the International Religious Freedom Summit there. Um, so it is it is an important group because it showcases that there is parliamentary backing uh, to the issue of persecution that only Muslims face. Um, there are um, a lot of conversations that the um, group has with the FCDO and staffers uh, to raise awareness. Um, and again, I mean, the, the the this obviously could not have been done without it. Mm. Um, so yes. Uh, one of the things I was at the APPG uh, election uh, for the new term, and one of the things that was raised was the import of this hatred into Britain as well. And there was a booklet that was being distributed in Crawley, where I live, uh, and that yeah. and that was uh, sort of uh, spoken about uh, as well. And there was sh- a lot of concerns about this sort of uh, hatred spreading, and we experienced that in Tooting as well. Is that still a concern about the imported hatred or? Uh, sectarianism being brought imported into Britain yes I, I think it is definitely a concern um, more more of a concern a few years back and luckily obviously things have calmed down somewhat but obviously we can't be complacent about this there is a pre- present danger 
mm. of hate clerics, Pakistan coming to the United Kingdom, uh, doing tours across mosques in, in the UK and preaching hate against uh, you know communities like ours, mm-hmm. which of course it was, was part and parcel the reason why Asad Shah, for instance, in Glasgow, an Emily shopkeeper was killed because the killer got um, excited by a hate cleric and uh, went there and you know brutally murdered him. That's so that right. that danger is always there in the back of our minds, and the government is aware. The Home Office, in particular. Um, works very closely. We also have some very good connections with um, Sarah Khan, who now is uh, within the Department for Communities and Local Government, but previously used to be the um, Commissioner for Extremism uh, on, on this very particular matter. So it's died down somewhat, which is good news, but it, we, also, we, all, we always are vigilant mm. about the threat that this obviously presents. Uh, Azhar, so much uh, uh, information there about the good works that has been taking place and uh, good luck for this conference and uh, I hope that uh, the impact uh, of this conference uh, has a positive one on not just the Ahmadiyya Muslim community but all persecuted communities including the Christians in various countries and, and Buddhists etc. everywhere. Uh, a, a great task as well and uh, good luck uh, at the uh, uh, next week. Thank you for having me, and see you next week. Inshallah. Uh, thank you very much. Right. That was uh, Azza Chaudhry, uh, who is a uh, lead at the APPG for the Andalusian Muslim Community and uh, in charge or part of the organizing committee for this conference release. Now we're coming to the best part of your show, and we've got Shahid Khan in front of you as well. Uh, <coughs> yes. Sports Review. My dream come true. Weekend World. <laughs> <laughs> sports Review. <coughs> Right, Shahid, uh, alaikum mm. once again. Thank you very much for coming into the studio with us. It's always a pleasure to have the person live in front of us. Yeah. Uh, and uh, being, uh, I mean, before we go into the sports review, being an ex-England hockey player, international hockey player, uh, what sort of level of uh, commitment does one require to achieve to maintain that high standard and even be considered? I mean, you know, a lot of us all try to do our best and you know to be a top tennis player you have to work really hard in any sport tell us a little bit about that yeah thanks very much uh, well you put me on the spot actually <laughs> some some time ago since <laughs> I was doing that commitment <laughs> but you're absolutely right I've just actually been reading book of Mohammed Farah and the commitment that I think he has shown is something that is to be admired and I'm sure that a lot of other people in every sport are doing similar things as well Murray I'm sure is, uh, his mother has written a book as well mm about the way that they were brought up and the commitment that they have shown and not just being uh, the actual training itself but getting to the training as well. There's a lot of other people involved with the backroom staff and so forth at that highest level where in my day perhaps there were not so many uh, but now there seem to be at times a bigger entourage with them rather than just them on the field. But the commitment has to come in from within the players and in some uh, team sports different from the individuals no doubt. But nevertheless, the, the uh, you can see even in football, the the bigger the uh, people, the entourages with the people, the physiotherapist and uh, psychologist and the other people coming through the four as well. So that in itself is something, and it has to be inbuilt as well. And from a very uh, early age, I think mostly that you'll find that this comes through, and eventually then the other skills come through later on. But the commitment and the desire and the hunger for that sport has to be there in from the beginning. Indeed. Uh, you mentioned Andy Murray. I don't know if you know that he was 
one of the school children when his school got shot at, I've uh, forgotten the name of the school Dum- now. Dumblane. Dumblane, yes, that's right. He was the Yes, he was a school student when it happened. He was there, Indeed, mm-hmm. uh, a young girl. So to have come through that and achieve mm. what he did is absolutely amazing. Yeah. Uh, coming on to what we're doing now, uh, talking of Andy Murray, so let's start mm-hmm. with tennis. <laughs> I believe, I think you've got uh, you've got a keen interest, <laughs> a family looking at the tennis. Uh, some of the, to- the, the Russians aren't coming. Um, was that a good decision politically or? Or uh, could 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 it have been done? Uh, could they have been allowed? Because other tournaments are allowing them. It's a hot, hot, hot potato. This. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the one mm. that you want me to handle. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think there's a lot to be said about the fact that uh, why just uh, in this case that the peoples have been ousted from the fact that you mentioned about uh, Ukraine is becoming so much in the headlines for that matter. But when you think of other uh, countries around the world, I think we have similar situations as well. But I think, uh, in my opinion, uh, Wimbledon should have followed this, the uh, practice of the other ones and allowed them in, to be honest with you. And this somewhat dis- uh, dilutes the uh, Wimbledon as such this year. To be, to be, uh, may not, may not, they may not be the top seeds in that, but nevertheless, once you are uh, bar- barring players uh, for that respect, then... You have lots of other things that will can come into being, and I think uh, this will be going down the wrong, wrong path. Mm. Mm. <coughs> Djokovic wasn't uh, wasn't in support of this, uh, by the way. Indeed, he did, he absolutely. Didn't mention that yeah, we should absolutely. not be penalizing individual players for what a nation has done. Right. <coughs> what about uh, Emma Raducanu? A bit of a disappointment for us British because uh, having won the uh, American Open. We were expecting lots from her. Is it too much on her young shoulders? She's only uh, 18. Yeah, I mean, she. I think she's <laughs> alluding to that fact herself now that she's only 18, 19, and that the pressure is. Uh, well, she says what pressure, but <laughs> <laughs> I think you can. It's for all for, for all of us to see on the court when she does come onto the court, and she's taken once you're a uh, U.S. winner, then you expect people to do mm. better. And A lot she, of pressure on the coaches. Indeed. She's firing them. Yeah, uh, yeah it, uh, that's mm. right. The other thing that uh, she's so uh, volatile and just getting rid of the coaches so early and so quickly. I think, uh, yeah, it is too early in for her age group and that. But nevertheless, that tennis is the situation when you start winning, you do start winning, and uh, people in the past have done it. Uh, but I think it, it, some of the uh, better people have said that it might not be, we might not see her for, to win a major for a long time now. Mm. So I'm not sure whether that's the case. Uh, what her uh, what she prefers grass as well, mm. uh, but it appears to be since that uh, U.S. victory, it has been downhill. To be honest with you, I think that very, very disappointing for the British public. It has been. Djokovic and Nadal. Um, <laughs> what do you think? Uh, are they in line for the final? The two of them playing very well, aren't they? No, both are playing uh, very well, but uh, I think uh, Djokovic has the edge, really. Yeah, uh, from what I've seen. Indeed, I think Djokovic uh, has been that uh, mental, more than anything else, the mental uh, uh, strength that he shows is outstanding. I mean, I'm not getting taking anything away from Nadal. Mm. In fact, I visited his uh, uh, training camp, not his camp, his uh, academy in Mallorca last year, and put to that, I mean, the, the way these uh, major uh, players are now taking things off the pitch as well, mm-hmm. uh, trying to create other people like themselves as well. Uh, but Nadal, but I think <laughs> in terms of Wimbledon, I think it's been overshadowed by the match with, uh, we saw the other day between Nick Kyrgios and Stefan. So that's taken away a bit of limelight from Wimbledon itself. Yes, 
Uh, what about Nick Kyrgios? <laughs> I, mean, I mean, I found him, uh, uh, his matches to be more exciting because they're unpredictable as to what uh, he's going to get up to, uh, much more than uh, watching Nidal yesterday. Uh, he, well, you're absolutely, you know what you're going to get from Nadal is uh, uh, such a high level of tennis. Mm. But Kyrgios, I think, uh, I think it's people are just the volatility of the player uh, mm. the, of the game itself, and people are just looking. What he has said himself is that I'm filling in. Sta- I'm filling in stadiums. I mean, it must yes. be good for the sport. <laughs> but in what? At what expense? To be honest with you, I saw my grandson the other day uh, imitating some of the things that happens in football, and they're not all very good. Mm-hmm. So I wonder what this will lead to in terms of uh, the followers. Of uh, not a good advert for tennis, to be honest with you. Whilst I mean, it does add in a bit of spice and so forth. But I think it went over the board, to be honest with you, him and uh, the other players. So, and uh, one thing I did find uh, uh, interesting was the fact that they had, bizarrely, they had played in doubles between <laughs> two, three years ago. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't as if he doesn't know him that well. Mm. So, but I think he's trying to get the best out of him. And this is the sixth time that he's gone into the fourth after six years. So he thinks this is his best way of perhaps uh, uh, progressing. Mm. Is this the best way of progressing or is he underachieving because of these behaviors? Because <coughs> we know McEnroe was famous for it. Uh, most of the time McEnroe was right, but, but the behavior wasn't to be condoned. Absolutely. I mean, in sometimes you do find in some sportsmen you have this streak within themselves. I mean, you found this in Canton, I think, at times. And I mean, he had to be harnessed by uh, Ferguson, I know. But you will find some of this, and that lead, that is, gives them that edge. And I think in some terms, uh, some in, they feel that this is something that will be leading up to their uh, to, to their victory. So they have to rely on them and put the best out in the, in terms of this. But obviously, not good for the sport. Mm. Serena Williams also had a tantrum a few years ago, <laughs> but she had to go at someone being racist when the umpire himself was black. <laughs> so, and, that, and that didn't go down well for her. Uh, but uh, she came back this year, uh, went out in the first round. Time to hang up the boots? I think so. I think, uh, like a lot of sportsmen, they, they don't want to give up the sport until they're forced to. I mean, mm. uh, we have a player for Kent playing in cricket. He's 45 in that stage. And they don't know when to finish. But as long as they are producing the results and so forth, you can keep on going. But... Tennis is such a sport that uh, you're at the the focus is on you and so forth. And if you're not able to produce those results, uh, it doesn't all go well for yeah, future. And fitness has to be of the Absolutely. highest level in that sport. Indeed. Okay, what about cricket now? Uh, England were having a real surge, uh, <laughs> a great win against New Zealand, but uh, India is formidable. Well, that uh, you mentioned about the uh, New Zealand series. They won 3-0 in the end. I think that was more flattering than anything else. I mean, in all three games, it could have gone the either way, to be honest with you. Mm. And they were really bailed out by the way that Bairstow, the form that he was in, the probably the uh, form of his life. Mm. And that seems to be the case even in the match now, in that now they have recovered a little bit. And India, that one-off one game, always going to be difficult in that India have not had any warm-up, anything at all. And let's not forget that India themselves in this first match, on this first innings, were 98 for 5, and they progressed to 414. Uh, so in terms of uh, early wickets and so forth, but it depends as to what the later batsmen are doing as well. And here, I think, they've had a bit of a uh, resurge. I mean, I know they've got about 145, 46, 46 now. So it's all to play for. And uh, the, the England seems to be in betting, seems to be relying on Stokes and Bairstow uh, and, and, and Root as well. But when Root doesn't perform, then there's a disaster. 
Yeah, I think Besto has actually the one who has actually been catching the limelight in the last three matches, mm. uh, and today, in fact, as well, he's scored 50 already. So, yeah, they are relying on the opening partnership seems a lot to be lacking at the moment. They still can't mm. find the right uh, formula there. So, since, in fact, uh, uh, Alistair Cook, they haven't had anybody who's actually a, a permanent fixture there, and that obviously is, uh, puts the pressure on the other ones who are coming down. But Root has, as you said, bailed them out on a number of occasions. Yeah. On the bowling side, Bamra, uh, as always, such an unusual bowler, but very effective. And England got a few up-and-coming bowlers coming up because Anderson and Broad seem to be on the way out now. Yeah, I mean, the new uh, coach has said, uh, McCallum, that he does want to have them playing as long as they can. And so they, they, he wants to put out the best side. You mentioned about the, the fast bowlers. There are three or four of them are injured at the moment who would normally be in the side. Uh, so they are having to put in new uh, bowlers. For instance, Potts from uh, Durham, I know, is something that uh, bears to, um, the captain likes, Stokes. Mm. Uh, so he did well in the matches against the New Zealanders, as well as scoring runs as well. Uh, but I think we didn't mention the fact that Broad got that most expensive uh, over in Test cricket yesterday. It was incredible. Oh, yes. <laughs> Uh, that, that could be the start of him thinking seriously about uh, hanging his boots. But uh, Shai, thank you for coming into the studio. Thank, thank you. you to our contributors, Dr. Fareed, uh, Philip Gant, and Azar Chaudhary. And as ever, Walid co-hosting with me. And to our listeners uh, for uh, joining us and uh, being loyal to me and to our show. Uh, As-salamu alaykum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. And we hope to speak to you in two weeks' time.